Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Let's do it. This is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we're talking with Carol Howard Merritt about the 2007 Jason Reitman film, Juno. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and teacher in Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather up for conversation from our perspective as pastors, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. This week, our guest Carol Howard Merritt has asked us to go see Juno, so we've done it. And in the first segment of our show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask her what Juno has to do with life and ministry, theology, and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Juno for this coming Lectionary Sunday, which will be Sunday, December 24th, Christmas Eve, which also is the fourth Sunday in Advent. This is going to be a busy weekend for you, Matt. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. So, I want to introduce our guest for the week, Carol Howard Merritt. Carol is a well-known pastor, writer, and speaker whose books include Tribal Church and the recent Healing Spiritual Wounds. She's also a blogger at our host publication, The Christian Century, and we are so honored to have her with us today. Carol, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to, to talk with you both. So we are back in the high school romantic comedy today on Technicolor Jesus. We've talked about Clueless and Saved and Bring It On, and today we have got in front of us 2007's Juno, in which the titular Juno McGuff, a high school junior, discovers she's pregnant and eventually decides to carry the baby to term and find adoptive parents, and we are along for the journey. This is Jason Reitman's directorial work. He's got the credit, but the real creative pair behind this film was brand new screenwriter Diablo Cody, who won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, and actress Ellen Page, whose performance as Juno catapulted her into the limelight. And this movie took the market by storm. $143 million for a little indie movie and a Christmas release. I remember this year, it was one of those years I was at the theater all the time because it was No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood and The Diving Bell and The Butterfly and Michael Clayton, like an amazing amazing season for movies. But Juno had this moment, like not just as a high school romantic comedy, but also as something a bit more hard-nosed, a bit more honest, maybe a bit more surprising than some of its peers. And I wonder if that, that kind of magic is what we're doing here today. Carol, I'm, I'm so glad you suggested this, and I was so glad to revisit it, but you tell me, what's the, what's the secret sauce in this movie, and what does it have to do with our contemporary theological imagination? Well, I think you're absolutely right about the magic being in the screenplay, in the writing. Um, the, you just laugh and cry, or at least I cried. I think because um, my daughter is 16, and so, you know, I, I couldn't help but imagine, well, how would I, how would I 
be in this situation? What would I, how would I respond? You know, would I be cool in this? And, and, uh, and yet it's, it's kind of your greatest fear as a parent and, um, greatest concern, but hope that, you know, in all of this, uh, disaster that happened. So, yeah, I think that the secret sauce is just the dialogue. Um, Juno can be irritating. She can be frustrating, incredibly awkward, says the wrong things, but also very smart, very, um, uh, just has that very keen wit like so many teenagers do. I mean, they can be so annoying because they're so right a lot of the time. So I, I love that about, um, about, you know, also she has this sense that she's doing something miraculous and, um, and yet everybody else is sort of looking at her like, you know, she's really screwed up. So I, I really like that. Um, and, and what, you know, has to do with our contemporary theological imagination, I think as we enter um, the Christmas season, we have a really good idea about um, how Jesus is God and how Mary is the mother of God. And we're getting these you know, Christmas cards in and these nativities and, and you've got this picture of this lovely family and, and Mary's on her knees. And if you've ever given birth, which I don't think either one of you have, but I have, so I'll expect, I'll speak from experience. Uh, <laughs> you can't get on your knees after that. Like, that's just not <laughs> happening. It's just, just a medical impossibility. So we have all these, like, ideas about this divine experience. And, um, and so Juno seems to me, it takes this, it, it reminds us of the, the very human experience of giving birth and the emotions and the hormones and the frustration and the puking. Um, and, you know, Mary was in much more danger, but the, the also, um, uh, just those intricate thoughts about, you know, is this a great miracle or did I just really screw up? So there's that sort of, um, humanity that is, I think we can read the, the birth narrative through that human perspective. And then, uh, and the other sense, there is this sense of um, something divine that's happening in Juno's experience. I mean, she talks about it in very miraculous sort of terms, you know, talks about Moses and the reeds. She talks about being a sacred vessel Mm -hmm. um, over and over again. You know, this is a blessing of Jesus in, in this garbage dump. That's actually her, her mother-in-law, but I mean, her stepmom. But, you know, there there's this, um, uh, this sense of something really divine happening. 
So I, I would I totally agree, Carol. I was as I was watching this, I was struck by the sort of materialness of the world that they created, yeah. um, and it's and all of the little details that they um, that they do in order to help you see that. Um, not just the way in which you watch Juno grow, which which is interesting because she's so slight. She, I mean, there are these these camera shots of her walking down a hall of other high school students, and mm-hmm. everyone seems to almost tower over her. Right. Um, and yet, she's she's the one who has this this actual bodily formation that was going on, and you and you watch that happen over the course of the of the movie. But moreover, I mean, the puking, the talking about the heartburn, the talking about all sorts of different things that are go- going on with her body. This movie doesn't shy away from that, and I, I think Diablo Cody, who who was sort of discovered, I from what I remember, Matt, um, because she was writing a book or a blog about being a stripper. Um, and this was the avenue of her becoming, uh, getting her first opportunity to write a spec script, which ended up being Juno. Um, and she'd never written a script before, but this is like her first go at it. And I think she has a sensitivity and understanding of the value and beauty of bodies. And it sort of shows up over and over again in this movie. Uh, and I think you're right that that's a that's an important and often lost part of the Christmas season. Because um, if we're talking about the incarnation and its value, uh, what do we lose theologically when we don't have the um, the signs and symbols of bodies, especially in our nativities, right? I mean, these are the the preeminent symbols of the Christmas season. And like you said, Mary's on her knees, but there's like no birthing stool in the nativity and there's no like bloody rags and there's no placenta and there's no myconium and there's no blood. Everything has been deodorized. And, um, and in order to deodorize it, it has to remove the presence in place of bodies, which I think, actually does a disservice ultimately to our theologies of the incarnation. One of the interesting things that I experienced going back to this movie was that, you know, when I first saw it, I mean, I was, I was in my twenties, but I still, I think in my, in my imagination, I, I watched that film through the eyes of, of the high school characters. I kind of, I watched it through the eyes of the kids and there's no way now for me to go and revisit this film without kind of seeing it through the eyes of the grown-ups. And, and so to me, the film, even though Diablo's wit is at the, I mean, Juno's wit is at the heart of it, it becomes a movie that rests on the emotional journeys of, of the grown-ups, of her parents, J.K. Simmons and Allison Janney, and of the adoptive parents, uh, Jason Bateman and uh, Jennifer Garner. And that those characters felt super realized to me now as someone in, you know, in some ways in a similar place in my own life. Um, uh, and I think that one of the, I think for me, one of the pieces of secret sauce in this film is the way that they are written with such nuance. I mean, Jennifer Garner is, is just like this amazing masterwork in the heart of this movie where she's able to be so, uh, so kind of she comes off as being so kind of controlling and overbearing in some ways at the beginning and but you see this like the, the deep longing and the deep expectation and the deep hopefulness and like the 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 
the sorrow that's wrapped around that from some previous time where this didn't go well. Uh, and I, I just, I, I totally resonated with that in a way that I, I hadn't before. It kind of, it, it flipped the movie on its axis. Carol, as you were watching the movie, I mean, you, you talked about having a 16 year old. How did, how did the vision of parenthood strike you? Yeah, you know, I've I've had friends now who have been in this situation where their daughter gets pregnant and um, you have to figure out what to do. And I, I was just, I'm always amazed because um, I grew up in a really conservative background. And so um, oftentimes the parents and grandparents are really angry. And I want to shake them and say, you know, it's not the time to be angry, you know, <laughs> especially if you've decided to keep the baby, it's time to just be happy. And, uh, and so I always think about, um, they didn't get angry, but then there was that line of, I just thought you were the kind of kid who knew when to say when. Right. And it, I mean, it was, you almost felt like, Ah, oh, yeah, he didn't hit her, but oh, that's so painful. Yeah. Yet, as a parent, I do understand that now. Like, I understand that, that sense of deep disappointment, not because it, it just there's this disappointment of what could have been. And, uh, you know, and so, so you have that sorrow and disappointment for your child as, as much as, um, uh, for, for everything else. So those things just really caught me, you know, that, um, you're talking about the long longing and expectation and that hope. And, um, certainly we're feeling that in Advent. So you have this longing and then you also have, um, you have this sense of real disappointment and, um, but, but so, so yeah, that's, that's what I loved about the portrayal of the parents, um, all the different sorts of parents and, you know, who's becoming in, in a certain sense is that it's so complex and, um, uh, the writers, the writer was really able to get at each and every aspect or not every aspect, but so many different aspects of that um, that situation when you see that plus sign on the peace stick, you know, <laughs> like, uh, that's just what's so shocking and and exciting and horrifying. One of the conversations that we continually have in the church is kind of a how to treat. How to, how to set our own emotional registers during Advent? Like whether mm. is you know is this a season of of kind of penitence? Is it is it a miniature Lent where we take out all the fun pieces and sing dour Advent songs and and deprive ourselves of something? What does it mean to be in a season of expectation uh, that that kind of prophesies something coming? Uh, and what does it mean to allow? hope or joy into that. Uh, and, I, and I think that there's some mirroring here where the film gives us such a, as, as you point out, so many different kind of rich emotional registers of 
what it is to be in that expectant coming of this child, that there's trepidation and anxiety and, you know, oh, crap kind of moments. And there's also these, like, small moments of joy and small moments of hope. There's this that great scene kind of after she has reconciled with Bleeker towards the end of the film where we find him driving a little toy car over her belly and it just feels totally like life-giving and joyful for them um and and that I took as just this kind of exhalation in in the film uh, and I wondered what it would be like for us as churches to uh, um it makes me wonder whether I have not done a good enough job kind of allowing some of those pieces of joy to filter into the advent season that that's a great point. I remember when we found out we were pregnant and um, my husband and I, and I wanted a baby so bad. And um, we waited until it was like seven years after we got married because we, we were poor and then we were um, in seminary and then we were poor again. And then, <laughs> and then we, uh, and then we um, finally, you know, got pregnant. And I just remember looking and, you know, I, I had been longing for a baby like just every cell in my body. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, time clock became like this time bomb, you know, Mm -hmm. I just wanted a baby so bad. And, um, and Brian, my husband, he, he kind of wanted a baby, but he was sort of like, you know, I like our life together as it is. And, And when we found out, I just got terrified. Like what, what have we just done? You know? And he was, he was just so joyful. He was Mm -hmm. just, Know, just bouncing off the ceiling, so excited. And um, for me, you know, all of a sudden it became this loss of, oh no, you know, what's, wow. what's going to happen? And, and so throughout the pregnancy, we, we would switch places. Sometimes I would feel that joy and he would feel that loss. And, um, but that, that moment of finding out was, uh, you're right, just this incredible range of emotions. And, you know, we all know that Advent is like that, right? You're dreading seeing your family, maybe you're mm-hmm. dreading missing your family. You're, you're so excited, uh, about new life and children and, and, uh, there's money anxiety with it. And there's, yeah. you know, all these mixed emotions going on. So I, I do think that complex emotional terrain that Juno sets out, um, has a lot to do with, with what we navigate through uh, as pastors and as church members. Additionally, I think Juno, the movie has this, uh, this trajectory that Juno, the character has, which is she learns what parenting ought to look like Mm -hmm. now that she's carrying a child. You get the sense that she doesn't actually know what parents do or how they ought to work. And, until she starts, um, she starts watching. And on the one hand, she's very attracted to the type of lifestyle of the Jason Bateman character who likes the music that she likes and likes the movies that she likes. But then she watches her stepmother like stick up for her in the ultrasound room. And she watches her father come with her 
to sign legal documents. And and she's beginning to realize the type of responsibility that's that's required and that you stay in it. Even though you're anxious, even though you're joyful, you just have to remain present. And so when she sees the Jason Baseman character say, like, I'm out of here, like the anxiety is too much, so I'm going to leave. Um, I think this is a betrayal on the one hand, but it also is the final lesson that she needs to learn because there is still someone who's going to stay in it. And that that idea of just like being present, even in the midst of all of the conflicting emotions that you might have, seems very Advent to me and seems very Mary to me. I mean, if we think about the character of Mary, she she bounces in and out of the scene. I mean, it, she shows up really early as the the, the Theotokos, you know, the, the, the Christ bearer. But then she shows up later when Jesus is a kid in Luke's gospel and sort of reprimands him for going into the temple. And then she shows up later in John's gospel at a wedding. And then she shows up at the cross. And then my favorite story now is that in the Acts narrative, she shows up at Pentecost. Like, and you get the sense that She's been there the entire time. She just keeps showing up. And as a parent, she's not just there at the birth of this child. She's there as this child. I mean, if you understand the, the genealogies to see like Christ as the, the sort of mother of the church in some way, like she's there as the grandparent of the church watching it be born. So I, Juno made me think a little bit more about the ways in which parenting is so much of it is showing up, um, but also the ways in which Mary shows up. I like that a lot. And it may be a good segue for us to get a little bit into the specific lectionary passages for uh, this Sunday morning, the Advent 4 service. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Hey, y'all, we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. One thing that is consistently intriguing and thoughtful and provocative is Carol's blog, which we think you all should check out. It's called Born Again Again. Carol, I uh, I love reading your reflection on The Marvelous Miss Maisel, which I'm enjoying right now. Um, it's, it's a great show, and Amy Sherman Palladino is doing some really very interesting work with it, and I appreciated the way that you discussed the ways in which more complicated portrayals of women's experiences that are messy can exist without automatically being defined as a mess. Um, so go check out Carol's work at the Christian Century. It's consistently great. And also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Carol and Adam, let's move on to preaching specifically. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're going to look at the lectionary passages for year B, the fourth Sunday of Advent. This year, the lectionary gathers, gathers us with Mary on Christmas Eve, with the visit from Gabriel and Luke and the words from the Magnificat. But if you want to get off the beaten trail a bit, the Old Testament comes from God's covenant with David and 1 Samuel. We've got a psalm of praise and we've got the doxology at the very end of Paul's letter to the Romans. So I, I'm guessing we should keep starting and keep thinking about this, this, this character of Mary and the story that shows up. Carol, as, as you consider these passages or the Mary character in particular, what jumps out to you? How does Juno help us think about this moment in the scripture? 
Well, as I look at the Magnificat, I, you know, I, my daughter, as I said, is 16 years old and we watch a lot of movies together and she just laughs at me because she says, you can like see God in everything. <laughs> it kind of drives her crazy. You know, she's like, how come you can do that? That's annoying. <laughs> but, but there, there did feel like there were so many, um, just so many parallels here and, and they would use the word magnificent and uh and like I said there was this idea of um you know talking about you know can't can't this baby be like Moses in the reeds or she she had this idea that she would be canonized for her great sacrifice and there was this sense of this is going to be a huge sacrifice um, and it's going to bring incredible joy to the world. You know, this baby is going to bring incredible joy to somebody. Um, and this, this may be the stretch. Are you ready for the stretch? Absolutely. We're all, we're, we do, we do the stretch. The all right. All right. All right. So John passage, you've got, um, you've got, uh, the voice calling out in the wilderness and, and, um, and, you know, you, and, and, you know, you had this person at the, at the abortion clinic calling out right. in this very barren parking lot saying, you know, God doesn't want you to do this. And God appreciates your miracle when she, she turns and runs away. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I'm sorry. I don't know if you want to get into that, but, um, <laughs> but, but being pro-choice means I'm really glad she had a choice, right? She, she decided to, to, um, carry the baby through term. And, um, so, so I, I, I just couldn't help but see, you know, that, that protester, um, was it Sun Chi? I can't remember her name. Anyways, I can't help but just think of her as, you know, John the Baptist. And then you've got the other characters, um, you know, the stepmom felt a lot like Elizabeth. And, and you also have um, Polly, who kind of takes responsibility right at the beginning. And even though he doesn't do much during the pregnancy, he's always willing to. And I mean, the first question that comes out of his mouth is, well, what are we going to do about this? And, um, and you know, he, he wants to go to the ultrasound and he, he, he's just, you know, there's only so much responsibility he can take because he's so young. Yet there is this like sense of responsibility, even, you know, with the idea of, of he's like, well, I, I thought it was my idea <laughs> having sex in the first place. So you just, you sort of have this like Joseph character in the sense of he's willing to take responsibility. He's willing to take action. Um, so there's all of these characters who are in play in Juno who are also, um, I think, 
you know, there, there's, there's some significance in this narrative, which has significance in the narrative. Yeah, I like the idea that this is that there's a choice here, and and it reminds me that we're always surprised by, or maybe we're not always, but maybe we should be surprised by Mary's answer. Um, my wife wrote a poem once about the angel of God who's tired and cold, having knocked on a thousand doors, and there's no one willing to say yes to this, and. And so she she writes this this little midrash as a way to to highlight Mary's consent and her choice to say yes, and and that's it. That's enough to counter his righteousness. It wasn't that the righteousness is the thing that brought him the angel to the door. It's her choice to say yes is the thing that um, that counts her as righteous and. She likely doesn't know what she's getting into, but she has some inkling, like you said, Carol. Um, she knows enough that when God shows up, like the world tends to get turned upside down. And considering God has just showed up in her life and her uh, life just got turned upside down, I wonder if this this song that she sings has this aspirational quality because she knows that for her to survive in the state that she's in and for this baby to survive— um, it's going to need an inverted world um, that outside uh, the center or who are constantly held in subordinate positions. Survival and security are going to require something more than the world can give them. Um, if they're going to really jump into the courage of having a child, then they're going to need this world to improve. Yeah, the um, Meister Eckhart has this beautiful commentary on John, and he talks about that that moment of consent, and he talks about when when Mary was able to say, "Here am I." Um, there was this. It, it said, "You know, God was born in her." And he also says that, like each morning, as we get up and as we say. Here am I. God is born within us, and and so we begin to birth God in this world. And um, for me, that's just this like incredibly profound thing. And so I, I always try to wake up in the morning and um, and pray that prayer and say, Here am I. You know, I give you consent. And, and there, like, there's a couple of people who are writing things on the internet oh no <laughs> i know can you imagine it and they're wrong uh-huh yeah. wrong things on the internet oh man no, <laughs> no there i i've read a couple of poems of um like uh, people who think that the spirit um raped mary and um and it's like you know a very provocative idea, and there's certainly this sense of um, Mary being um, being you know somehow harassed or assaulted, um, and yet it, the consent is there, and it's really clear, and it's really beautiful, and 
and you're right. I, I, I don't know if the angel is knocking on every door, but that's a, that's a profound thought. Um, but, but there was definitely this, no, here, here I, here I am. Just use me. I'm, I'm your servant, you know? And, uh, so I love that part about this story. There's a, a friend of mine, uh, is a, the homiletician at Duke. Her name's Jerusha Neal. She's just started there. Um, and she's written a lot about how the, the preaching moment itself has a lot to learn from Mary as, um, as people who claim to speak a word. I mean, like the word of God. And if you're from a reformed tradition, this, you know, the second Helvetic confession says, you know, the word of God preached is the word of God. It, it, in a very real way is that capital W word of God born into the world. Um, but how do we as human beings both keep that word of God separate from ourselves and yet internal to ourselves? And, and Jerusha finds in the person of Mary, this very deep theological idea that you can, um, you can form God inside of you. Um, and at some point you give it away. And once you give it away, it is both yours and not yours forever. And, um, that, and that's the great courage of comes with bearing a child into the world. It's the great courage that comes with trying to preach a word of God. Um, it's also the strange hubris that you might be able to protect this thing once it's out of your, um, body. Um, and yet, even in the midst of that, there is this incredible privilege that comes with having, having had God that close to you. And, this, and I think this sense that what is going to come out is not necessarily what you, what you expect. <laughs> right? I, I mean, and that's, that's part of... One of the surprising things for me about looking at these lectionary texts was the way in which the First Samuel um, David piece uh, flowed in for me in a way that it hadn't previously. I mean, he is he has been waiting for the restoration and the rebuilding of the Jerusalem Temple, uh, and um, and and goes to God and says, look, I'm, I'm ready. We're going to, we're going to build you a new house. And God says, who are you? I'm going to, you know, you don't build me a house. I, I build you a house and talks about David's lineage and the, the, the family that is going to come from him and through him. And, and I was struck by that and thinking about these shots in Juno of Jennifer Garner staring at the wall in the nursery imagining, trying to pick which color of yellow they're going to paint on the wall, right? And she's got her husband there uh, who is not in the same emotional place. And there is some expectation, I think, in the, it built into the hope of this child that the child is going to, um, is going to build the house uh, in a very practical way and is going to, in some ways... Uh, restore and in so doing kind of restore the family as 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 it as it previously was into its into its um historic unit of course what happens is something totally different where the even the expectation of the child ends up driving those two parents apart and what jennifer garner what vanessa discovers is that 
she's she's got a family that looks a lot different than the family that she thought that she had. And she becomes this new mother in a way that is, that is much different. Um, and that God builds her a house that looks a little different than what she was hoping and expecting for. Uh, and so I, I've, I have found that, that Samuel passage to kind of dovetail here in a way that I wasn't entirely expecting or noticing previously. Matt, I think that's a good, good way to try and gather some of these rich Old Testament passages into a time that is almost totally devoted to these New Testament passages is, can we, can we gather the ancient traditions um, and the histories of these families into a cohesive whole to see the ways in which Christ is both the fulfillment of those and, um, and also very much a part of them. Um, So I think that's a good place for, for us to wrap up. Uh, This is, Unfortunately, also the time where we say goodbye to Carol and thank her for uh, all of uh, for the suggestion of this movie, which I think we both really enjoyed rewatching and for your insight and wisdom. So thank you, Carol. We appreciate it. Well, thanks again for having me on. And it's great to uh, to talk with both of you. Thanks, Carol. All right, Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So my six-year-old son and I have been reading a book that I'm in love with. It is uh, called The Vanderbeekers of 141st Street. It is a, a new novel. He's probably a little bit young for it, but not much. I think it's like an eight to ten-year-old reading level. It's by a woman named Katrina Glacier, and... Uh, it's kind of an old-fashioned, big-family kids book, but it's been updated. So now we've got a multiracial family living in a Harlem brownstone, five kids, two parents, all super richly written with a bunch of pets flying around. And they are facing a, a kind of villainous upstairs landlord who won't renew their lease, and it's Christmas time. And all these kids are trying all of these disastrous schemes to try to win back his good graces so that they don't have to leave their neighborhood and their home. I have to admit that I have no idea where this book is going to go, but I'm loving it. The characters are so, um, are just so richly drawn and they're so uncynical. And even though the book is set in this totally modern context, the, the characters themselves feel totally wholehearted. Uh, even as it goes up against questions about race and class and gentrification and neighborhood. And I, I can imagine having recently spent some time in Harlem, like what that, what that dynamic is on the ground and what it means to take it and place it in the context of this big, rich family story. So I'm just about to the point of taking it out of my son's room and finishing the thing on my own. Anyway, that's my big hard recommendation for your Christmas reading. Full Where'd you find it? Um, I found it because I was looking for some new chapter books for us to read, and it was like one of the Amazon recommendations. And so now we've got it. So the, the Vander Beakers of 141st Street, highly recommend All right. It. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. That's great. We just finished um, Half Magic. Have you ever heard of this book? Uh-uh. It's about kids who find this charm who um, that allows them to make wishes, but only half the wishes come true. Nice. I like it. Like, not... not quantitatively but only if you if you vote if you wish for two things you only get one of them um and it's been an incredible way to teach my son division because <laughs> he under, he understands what half is now <laughs> right exactly all right adam what's going on with you so yesterday um 
the some sections of the internet that I sometimes uh, inhabit. We're talking about um, Black Thought, who is a rapper um, who is a part of the Roots, which is a Philadelphia hip hop right. group, who is also the house band for the Jimmy Kimmel Show. Um, and Black Thought went on uh, went on this this radio show, uh, and he then freestyled for ten minutes. Did That's you see incredible. it? I saw. Yeah, I saw it. It's, it's yeah, it's unbelievable. I watched it over and over again. Um, and part of what I'm astounded by, just as someone who loves hip hop and and listens to a lot of it, is just the attention and the the wordplay and how he can stay in it on beat um, right. and continues to to hit his rhymes on notes and on the beat and, and, and we'll cross bar lines. It's just, it's tremendous. And there was a, a couple months ago, Eminem put out some freestyle in a, right. in a parking garage or something like that. And, and right. people liked it um, because he it was mostly directed at Trump and it was, you know, trying to like stomp on right. Trump a little bit. And, but truthfully, the rap was kind of whack. It wasn't actually that good. Um, the craft was kind of so-so, but like Black Dot's freestyle is a Christmas miracle. It's it's so good. Yeah. And so as a preacher, part of what I was watching as he freestyled nonstop without flubbing either beat or word for 10 minutes was his breath control. And yeah, I just yeah. I just think about this a lot because of when I'm teaching preaching, I realize this is a it's a major problem for a lot of people who are just learning to preach is that they don't know where to take breaths within their sentences or their sentences are too long. And so they, they don't have enough breath to reach the ends of their sentences. And so I, I end up trying to do a lot of work with young preachers to help them figure out how to find the limits of their own breath. But I was watching him and he's so naturally gifted at finding breath in little ways here and there so that he can so he can rap four or five bars where it seems like he hasn't even taken a breath and i'm just right. I, yeah i was just super astounded by that and and in awe of it as someone who thinks a lot about breath and breath control with regard to speaking and i i feel like i have to go back and study it as a as a model for some new things that that it might offer to people who speak regularly and have to think about how they're going to gather their breath so um, so if you haven't seen it, go, go check it out. It's online. Just look up black thought freestyle and, and you'll find it. And, um, and yeah. you'll, yeah, it's rapturous. But that about gets us to the end for today. One more thanks to Carol Howard Merritt for hanging out with us. We are still working on a Christmas extravaganza episode. It'll drop sometime before the big day. And then we will see you all again in 2018. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, who was helping us out. Our music was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Buckley and Moonbeam. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.